0: This is Talking Ears, where music creators get to tell their story of sound and hearing. My name is Frank Wardinger. This episode's guest is Heather Maliek, a fiddle player, lifelong musician, and a fellow music audiologist. I ask her about her musical upbringing, and we discuss the emotional and many times physical demands of a musician's life, and how often this can put strain on your overall health and well-being. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing music by and featuring Heather to give better context to the relationship between her musical career and her career as a celebrated music audiology expert.
1: It was really frustrating for me to think about sort of the most important thing in my life for many years, which was my fiddle. I love my fiddle. I've had the same one since I was 13. It's one of those instruments that I'm going to play it forever because I just love it. And um, it was like, I don't know how to explain it, except it was like I was getting a divorce from my instrument. And it was the most heartbreaking, soul-crushing experience ever. And I, sorry, I'm like getting choked up thinking about what I was feeling at that time. But actually, uh, on top of all the pain and the passing out from the pain, like the mental effect of dealing with my instrument, and the first time I picked up my instrument, after all this, I almost couldn't do it. I think I was about around 16. I think I was around 16 when I first started getting some tinnitus. And it has worsened a little bit. Or I should say it worsened a little bit into my 20s, but is pretty much stable. Mine is very mild. If I think about it, I can hear it. Some evenings, it's pretty loud. Um, I do think mine is partially related to jaw tension. Mm. Like, I can crack my jaw. um, And the way that I my technique with how i used to play violin i was very tight in my upper body and my jaw and i don't i don't know if you know this but even my left shoulder blade is higher than my right uh, because of how I played for a long time, my back is kind of twisted, which is uh, why I have lower back problems, Sure, partially why I have them. So I do think the tinnitus is, is sort of from that. Of course, it gets exacerbated with sound exposure. So I am one of those people where I hate being in a loud environment without my earplugs mm-hmm. because I know I'll pay for it. Um, I There's this one story I tell when I I was a new audiologist and I was at a conference. Actually, it might have been the National Hearing Conservation Association conference <laughs> when it was in New Orleans. And Uh we were at a, I don't know, a tequila bar or something. And it was really loud. And I got back to the hotel and my ears were like raging. And Mm -hmm. I was, it was my most miserable moment with my tinnitus. And I stood over the hotel sink and just let the water run Mm -hmm. um, and just stood there for, I'm not even kidding you, an hour Mm -hmm. maybe until I got a grip. I I felt like I was losing it. And that was like the worst moment I can remember. But I I was at this loud environment. I didn't have earplugs. And the funny part is like it was a bunch of audiologists there. I remember that very clearly how miserable I was.
0: Do you feel like part of that was from like knowing because that's that's well into the point where you're an audiologist and you know what you're doing to your ears. Yeah. Is that part of why that's so frustrating for you?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, sure, it's frustrating when you think, oh, gosh, I knew better. But anybody who has tinnitus to that point and has it constantly, which a lot of our patients do, the frustration to me started with, oh, I, I did this to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how often do we hear this in clinic? Yep. And we say, no, this isn't your fault. Um, and then it progresses to, will this just go away? Uh-huh. I can't handle this. I'm breaking down mentally. I mean, I went through all the sort of like uh-huh. phases there. So, so yes and no. I mean, it went beyond that. was another time this was when I lived in Chicago I had a really loud experience a really loud gig on a very big stage and it was what was wedge monitors um, I couldn't hear right I didn't have my earplugs in you know, this is one of those things we talk to our patients about a lot, you know, where you're hearing protection or do things properly. Sometimes you get to the gig and like you, it, you can't hear right and work comes first. So it was one of those situations. And I was in clinic the next day and uh, I was testing someone. I was directing the Sensophonics clinic at the time. And I said to Mike, our equipment's messed up. So for anyone listening, Mike Santucci, I said, something's wrong with the equipment. Because, because you know, that was the type of audiometer where I had a headset on and I could hear the beeps too. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, the, the left channel is flat. It's like a half step flat. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> so Mike came in and he listened to it. And he was like, um, no, it's not. It's fine. And I mean, I had woken up and run to clinic and, you know, I hadn't yeah. listened to any music yet that day or whatever. Well, here for about, oh my gosh, I started crying. I started crying. It was really bad when I realized what was going on. And maybe about, it felt like two weeks, but it wasn't. Maybe about 10 days. My left ear was about a half step flat. It's
0: terrifying.
1: uh, Compared to my right, particularly in the low frequencies. And to this day, I perceive it as being a little bit flat, but just maybe just a cent or two. Okay. Um, But like if I'm in the studio and I just have on one earpiece or the other, So like, I like to use um, the active ambient in-ears in the studio now, but if I'm wearing one in-ear or the other, I feel like I can hear on the playback, like I know which in-ear monitor I had in based on my intonation, which no one else, no one else can hear. Like I've asked engineers and stuff, like, can you tell they, they can't, but I can, I know,
0: Okay.
1: like I can tell, you know, how intimate you are with your instrument. And I know like, well, if I'm playing it a certain way, I know which ear was listening. So, so it's just interesting.
0: Do you generally So when you're listening now with both ears, you can hear that that dissonance between the two?
1: No, no, no. It's okay. like um I I've um ear trained or brain trained mm-hmm. to it. But look at I think of all the patients I have and that you have where they have some distortion mm-hmm. or they have a pitch perception issue and it and we work with them and it kind of works its way out. Well, we don't know exactly what that mechanism is.
0: Right. That's really curious. Well, to jump ahead intentionally, the reason that's a problem is because of your instrument that you play. If you are a piano <laughs> yeah. player, oh, well, if you were yeah. a guitar player, a little bit of concern, but not, not as much, but with fiddle, sorry.
1: Yeah, I'm making the notes.
0: Pitches everything.
1: Although it's funny you say that because in the past year I've had two diplocusis patients. The most bothered ones I've seen are pianists. Which is really funny. Interesting, and maybe it's because they can't adjust the note.
0: That's true, right? Like then you're just then you're just trapped. You can't do like micro yeah. compensations.
1: And I don't know why. I I don't know that for a fact. I just know it's been it's kind of interesting. Like my two severe guys, I'm thinking of in the past year were pianists.
0: Well, that that I guess leads me then back to your instrument, your instrument of choice, which is. Mm-hmm. I like to think of you as a fiddle player, but I've also come to know that you also have a lovely singing voice. Oh, thank you. And you play guitar like a maniac. (laughs) Um, So where did that, all that, do you want to talk about where all that started for you? I know that it was a family. Well,
1: I, to start very early, I started singing in church choir when I was two. It was called Mm. the Cherub Choir. And I went to a big uh, Methodist church in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, which is actually where my practice is located now. Um, It was one of those churches where the music education was like through the roof. I mean, it was, the choirs were really good. We learned some music theory. When I was four, I started piano. I I still think it's great when kids start on piano because it's like a map. You know, it's a really nice way to visualize notes. When I was about seven, I started learning violin. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to old country music, like 1950s, 60s, 70s country, and folk music. So we would go to folk music festivals, listen to country music that had fiddle solos, this and that. And I never really was that into it, but I dabbled in fiddle as well. So I I always say it's kind of like being like bilingual. Mm-hmm. Fiddle and violin are the same instrument, really. I mean, you can set them up slightly differently, but it's like having a mouth and being able to speak English and Japanese or something. Mm-hmm. So... I played a little of both. I really got into fiddling more in my early teens, um, and I also picked up guitar because one of my sisters plays hammered dulcimer, and I wanted to play with her. We had always performed together. Like from the time I was eight, we would perform out at, at nursing homes and different things. We were homeschooled, and we would practice a lot um, because we had we were able to. Uh-huh. <laughs> our, lifest- our lifestyle afforded us the opportunity to play music all day if we uh-huh. wanted. My sister who plays hammered dulcimer, Lisa, she also plays banjo ukulele, and that's who I used to tour and perform and record with. We still perform like, we have a couple wedding gigs coming up and this and that. But she's she's got six kids. I'm due with my first. Life's busy. Like, we, we don't go on the road anymore. But that's who I was a street performer at Disney World with was Lisa.
0: Oh, really? And, um,
1: yeah, she's fantastic. So so she's the reason I picked up guitar and I fell in love with it. Um, the woman who taught her Hammer dulcimer, Tina Bergman, I started learning guitar chords from her because she played a little bit. And then at some point, it was like, okay, these – That's it. (laughs) You know, like, these are the chords I know, and here's how you play with a dulcimer. And so then I kind of took it from there and created my own style of combining uh, what would be considered guitar and and bass, really. I've heard that not a lot of people play quite like me, but I play in such a way really to accompany dulcimer playing. Um, So I kind of just developed my own style from there. I play a lot of contra dance music. I used to play a lot of contra dances um, pre-COVID. And that's a certain style of music. If anybody listening has been to a contra dance or, you know, knows what that is, it's, it's its own genre of music, really. I mean, I got a degree in music history. I also, in my teens, picked up an instrument, nickel harpa, which is like a Swedish fiddle. It's really pretty. Um, and yeah, I mean, playing at home, like there was always music being played because I have two older sisters. Again, they're both professional musicians. We all played a lot. Two of us went to music school. My dad plays accordion. My mom was like always singing. Um uh-huh. You know, it was just a, uh, there was always music. It's
0: a musical house. Just
1: music all the time. And then, so I got my degree in music history from the University of Akron. Just, I was playing constantly. I was playing fiddle gigs. I was playing in youth orchestras. I was going to college because I went early because of being homeschooled. I started college at 15. And uh, it was just like constant music. And I remember being so in love with my life until it got to the point where I was like, oh, this is, this is work now. <laughs> 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 you know? <laughs>
0: Before it became work, like what was it about? I remember my feeling. I would wake up in the morning, and that's all I wanted to do: mm-hmm. skip breakfast, go straight to rehearsal space, whatever it was. You know, forget to eat lunch, and all of a sudden it's five o'clock, and all you've been doing is playing piano. Yeah, what what is it about that? Like, why is it a is it a disease? Is it a uh, what? Is it an <laughs> obsession, or is it just like loving art?
1: I think everybody's got something in their life like that. If for musicians, I think it's just more apparent to everyone else what it is. I think of my husband. There's certain things that he really loves that I don't understand, like numbers. He loves numbers and math and spreadsheets. And, you know, he could sit down for like a couple hours with his, sp- <laughs> his spreadsheets. And I'm like, I don't get it because my brain doesn't work that way. On the other hand, I could sit down for a couple hours and play fiddle tunes mm-hmm. and not feel like five minutes has gone by. Huh. So I think everybody has something like that. It's just something that clicks in your brain.
0: Yeah. It's almost like like you're just looking for that flow state. You're just looking for that yeah. thing that... That's a cool perspective. I never thought about that. I've always tried to relate it to like somebody who draws or somebody who really likes to dance. That like you can probably just lose yourself in that. But you're right that there's other expressions out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, audiology is one. You know, when I shifted my focus from totally music... To audiology, I found something very similar happening, and now I can sit down and get on, you know, a journal and read several articles and not realize an hour's gone by. Wow! But I'm so into what I'm reading, yeah, you know, and learning and and thinking, oh, you know, how does this apply to my patients? I think it's really similar. It's just finding, yeah, it's finding that little um, that little thing that. What did you say? Puts you in a flow state.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It it gets your, gets your mind into that state of just like, uh, like there's no distractions. Like um, it's almost like an, an an active meditation and a meditation has an outcome at the end. Yeah. And we're, I think we're all kind of seeking that in some way, whether it's just to go for a drive and like lose, like stop, you know, turn the brain off and just slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's really interesting. Well, and and I'm also intrigued by the fact that you can get that from audiology. I don't know if I've ever gotten that from audiology, but maybe I need to work harder at it.
1: You're reading the wrong articles, Frank. (laughs)
0: Uh, Reading has always been a wonderful way for me to put myself into a sleep state. Um, So I'm really good at that.
1: That's a type of
0: flow. It's a a type of flow. So um, fiddle has a hold on you at that point. Mm-hmm. You're playing this very specific kind of music. Was that really your drive? Was it that kind of music or was it just the performing together? That, my that was? drive
1: was my sister. My drive was playing with my sister because, you know, it's interesting. I have a friend in Chicago, and I think you'll relate to this and probably any musician will. When you are close with someone and music is your main thing, this isn't totally true with a sister, but I find it's true with, with friends who play music. Um, you play more than you talk. Yeah. You communicate more through tunes. I have mm-hmm. so many good friends where I I maybe haven't spoken to them more than an hour <laughs> total the whole time I've known them, but we have played a 100 hours of tunes together, and I know who they are through that. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that kind of connection with people is really important. And so I really wanted to be able to play with my sister and have that special connection with her. I play with my husband now. He plays guitar. Oh cool. So I play fiddle and he plays guitar. It's to me it's like one of the most intimate things. Yeah. Like relationships you can have. So that was part of it. I also just really love uh, different expressions musically. So mm. uh, I do love classical music. I loved playing it. I did a little bit of orchestra sub work and uh, when I was uh, graduated it just wasn't my favorite, but I do find that it there are aspects of that that influence my playing now.
0: So I said, your
1: some So when I do studio work now which is my favorite I'll draw on Classical reference, fiddle reference, um, musical theater type stuff, you know, all these past gigs and, and stuff that I've done and genres that I've learned, some some blues stuff, jazz, and kind of put it all together and, and make my own kind of voice on the instrument, which so, so many professional musicians do. Because you get decades in yeah. and you're like, okay, well, I've got all these different things now that I've played and I want to create something new and special. Mm-hmm. And so that's... You know, I think that's usually the end result.
0: Yeah, they're all ingredients. They're all influences. I've known you now for I don't know how many years, 10 something years. I feel like our stories are so exactly the same. Like I played piano because I wanted to play with my older brother who played saxophone. We started a jazz band together, the four people. And all I wanted to do was hang out with him. And thus I learned to play instruments to play with him that was like our whole life was just playing music together but
1: music is is a conversation
0: yeah i mean
1: it's uh, it's a whole i mean it is a whole culture right and it's a different way of expressing yourself mm-hmm. you can express yourself you know you could have 10 fiddle players play a fiddle tune they're all going to play it differently and you know who they are sort of how they play it you can kind of tell what their personality is and music of course can be really personal and can be sort of self Mm self-soothing. You know, I remember when I was younger, if I had a bad day, I couldn't wait to get home to my fiddle or my guitar, or I would write a song, you know, during a lot of like my formative years, I did a lot of songwriting. It was very helpful to get feelings out. But the other way music is, is communal. And especially old time Appalachian music. I mean, performing's fine. I would I would say like performing's maybe like third or fourth on my list of things I like to do. I like to play for dances, especially I like to play, be, go to jam sessions and play. That's really, I like that communal aspect. And then, of course, studio work I always bring up because I just love working in the studio. Yeah, there is a self-focused aspect and then there's a communal aspect, I think.
0: I love that. That's spoken like a true musicologist.
1: <laughs> yeah, my one week of ethnomusicology school, my grad school dropout voice oh let me tell you how learned i am
0: no but it's true it's it's either sharing your sharing what you can bring to a moment so the community can have a moment together or communicating something with another person and then there's that that other one that i spend most of my time in which is just your your by yourself and it's it's a, it's a very personal self uh soothing expression yeah Um, and then sometimes that's recorded and sometimes that's an album but it's more often that it's 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 just part of your daily day
1: yeah it's like brushing your teeth it's also the best way to beat yourself up yeah uh be hard on yourself (laughs) I I remember being a teenager and when I was when I was probably two years into college and I mentioned I started early some days I was practicing, you know, 7 or 8 hours or pl- playing and practicing 7 or 8 hours a day and you know some it's it's very taxing. Mm-hmm. You can really I mean physically hurt yourself. Of course, we see that on the ear side, but with especially with being involved with the college music society wellness committee, I'm learning about all these other injuries, mm-hmm. dealing with my back, of course, all this stuff. Musicians can really take a beating.
0: Totally. Mentally and physically. And there's a lot of demand on performance on outcomes and on Mm -hmm. you know, I remember preparing for a recital or for an event or for, you know, auditions, um, to the point where you forget that like, oh, my shoulder's been hurting for a week and I've just pushed through. Exactly. And then you realize like that I should have dealt with that a week ago.
1: Right. Exactly. Or you think or you think it's supposed to hurt because everybody else's does.
0: Totally. And that led you to, because I'm well aware of your back issues, do you want to talk at all about that? When did that start for you, where you realized your body was being influenced?
1: I didn't realize it. That's the thing. Um, When I was in my mid-teens, I suppose I started feeling like sometimes my back would be sore. I'm very short. So for people who are listening, I'm five feet tall. Well, I used to be 5'1", but I've lost an inch, apparently because of the back issues. But I've always been a very small person. And you know, chairs are not really created for people my height. And I'd sit on the edge of my chair for my feet to reach the floor and this and that. And of course, being in youth orchestras and stuff, I was even smaller, you know, before I grew. And um, I guess it took a toll on my lower back is my understanding. Well, when I got to college, I it wasn't until my senior recital. So even though I was a music history major, I, I had to have a main instrument, which was violin. So I had to give a full senior recital. And it was – Such a great program. I played Stravinsky and I played a little Mozart, even though I didn't want to because I don't like Mozart. Um, you know, it was like, you know, just a really nice program. I had this beautiful black and white halter dress. I finished my recital. I finished with a fiddle tune, actually, and went off stage to like the receiving line or whatever. And my, one of my professors, you know, you, you expect someone to walk up to you and say, Oh, good job. This and that. He walked up to me and goes, I never, I never knew your shoulder blades were not even. Oh. I, we should have known that. Because my shoulders are even. Like, I balanced out, but my back is not even. Oh. And um, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and then, he, of course, he said, good job and stuff. Um, but anyway, long story short, <laughs> it was 2019. This all I never really did anything about it because I was like, well, my back gets sore sometimes, but, like, whose doesn't? Whatever. Um, 2019... I was (laughs) leaning, I literally was leaning over my niece's birthday cake to cut it and stood up and thought I was going to black out and like gasped in pain and was in shock for a second. And then it like set in and I started like tears just started streaming down my face. And my family was there and they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. Something happened here. (laughs) By the next day, I was like bedridden. My parents had to come and rescue me from my house um i couldn't move i'm someone who likes to understand what's going on with my body so i didn't want to go to the emergency room for a couple of reasons i was uninsured at the time so i was like give me an advil i'm fine and i was in bed a couple days i like couldn't move and finally my mom said if you can't get up I, we're calling 911 and we're getting you out of here so mm-hmm. so i got up well when i would get up i would pass out from the pain but, but again i would rather feel the pain and know what's going on than not. Does that make sense? And so I just decided I'm going to start walking. Um, there's this joke in my family that I thought I was walking when I first tried, but my brother-in-law was actually lifting me up from behind. Like <laughs> I was like, I'm walking. He's like, you're not. I'm supporting you. Like He would be passed out right now. <laughs> um, but I slowly, My my grandma had lived with us and there was a walker left from her and I used a walker. Oh, yeah. And I just kind of made my own physical therapy regimen. And a dear friend of mine, who's a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic, who I often refer musicians to, kept calling me, checking in, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd say, here's how I'm doing. And he'd say, okay, well, keep me posted kind of thing. And his wife's a physical therapist. And, and now I kind of know I'm learning my limits. I have thrown my back out a couple times since then badly, but it's less and less because I'm learning how what triggers it. I've changed my playing technique a little bit. And, you know, the hardest part about it was the mental, the mental issues I had. It was really, it was really hard. It was almost like, and then, of course, redoing my playing technique was like going through, yeah, like couples therapy with my instrument is what it felt like. Um, I ended up speaking with a friend of mine who is very spiritual. Um, He works with a lot of mindfulness stuff. And he just let me talk to him for like a couple hours about it and just confide in him and, It was so helpful to have someone to talk to who had a calming effect on me, who gave me some things to work on. It really, really helped me emotionally. And then, you know, I'm a born-again Christian, so like prayer, scripture, that helped me too, meditating on that. I hope anybody who's had a similar experience is nodding right now. Like I know I'm not alone. I think every musician who deals with even an auditory a music-induced hearing disorder, anything like that, it what a struggle mentally
0: it yeah. is. It's such a tie-in because it feels like a part of you is is being pulled away, removed yeah. in a very yeah. a very just unwanted way. I mean, you're totally right that the mental game with any kind of chronic injury or chronic illness is just that it's, it's the fear of the future, the fear of future damage or the fear of loss, disconnection from what you used to love Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that drives that continued pain. Yeah. And if you can let go of that fear and let go of like, okay, well, even if I lose that, I've still got this. Then you can through mindfulness, Mm -hmm. remove that feedback loop, that negative feedback loop.
1: Yeah. And I, you can't help but think, you know, of, People learning instruments and how they can be evaluated by teachers. And how do we give teachers the right tools to evaluate? And of course, that's something we work on a lot with the college music society. I'm a co-chair of the committee now. Um, and I, you know, after this back stuff happened, of course, I am who I am. And I looked up articles and like up to 80% of violinists struggle with back pain. Oh, well, geez. I do think I had a genetic predisposition to greater problems because of my stature. My mom and my aunt have dealt with different back pain things in their in their lives. So I think I was predisposed and then bad technique exacerbated it. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't blame my teachers because I don't think it's talked about. And I don't think, you know, a music teacher, you can't expect them to evaluate a kid's body. You know, right. just the same as we say, oh, they, well, they should be teaching hearing health or like kids should be wearing earplugs. Well, you need to have the right person who's educated in the right way to teach it. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, like, if I would have had a teacher who w- really knew back issues and technique and could have looked at me and said, I think this one's predisposed to some issues because of her stature. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe she needs to play a little different way. Here are some things I can teach her. That may have prevented the problem. And so I think often, I mean, a lot falls under the shoulders of music educators, but um, the health, the bodily health of students... I don't know. I'm not going to say the, I don't think it should fall on their shoulders, but I do think we'll see in the future more being incorporated
0: mm-hmm.
1: with that. I mean, we already see it with hearing health mm-hmm. and I think other, I think other things will start as well, being able to mm-hmm. be um, healthier musicians overall.
0: Cause I think that what you're hitting on there is that the teacher may not be the right person to present all of the exact data and references and adjustments and like really analyze somebody's posture and playing ability and playing style. We can't
1: expect that. We can't. Yeah,
0: we can't expect that. However, we can expect that we can better educate and make aware the general teacher population of... Red flags Mm -hmm. of subjects they should have kind of peripheral knowledge of. Like, I think right now we're in this wonderful place. I don't know if you agree with this, but this wonderful place where now people can't plead ignorance to hearing difficulties with music. Yeah. When I was going through engineering school, no one ever mentioned hearing protection, hearing conservation, because I think if you asked about it, the answer would have been like, I don't know. Is that something we need to look into? Like it was a simple pleading of ignorance. Now I don't think that's possible.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think, I I don't think it's possible. I think some people can dive into what they think is hearing health or what they've been taught and it's it's incorrect and it's not going to protect them. Um, But I do think the awareness is out there such that, I mean, how many times do we get emails from university programs asking about hearing health? I even just spoke to a high school the other day, not not a music class, but just about, it was like one of those career things, mm-hmm. like careers in the music industry. And they asked me to speak about what it, it's like to be a music audiologist, yeah. which I thought was really cool. And so they got to learn a little bit about hearing conservation too. So yeah, I do think the conversation's out there now. In terms of other systems of the body, I don't know because I don't work in those fields, Maybe, you know, maybe there's a back surgeon listening to this who's like, yeah, we have a questionnaire for music students that they can take for red flags. I don't know. Maybe that exists and -hmm. maybe it's just not widely used. Or the other thing is I'm getting old. Maybe when I was younger, it wasn't a thing, (laughs) you know, but maybe it is now.
0: Well, I would hope so because like I would hate, I would have to think that if, I'm not sure if you want to go here with this analogy, but I would have to think that if you or a kid learning how to play X sport, one of the main things that they would discuss is when you play X sport, here's how to avoid injury. When you play tennis, here's how to avoid tennis injuries. Here's, here's how to avoid head injuries in football. Like it can't be ignored because yeah. it's known, but that's never discussed. They, you know, they, they can sell you a loud guitar amp or a set of drums and never Mm -hmm. once tell you this thing this thing goes 150 miles an hour there's a risk here yeah it's never discussed yeah
1: and of course well you know to bring up sports my husband's background is in sports medicine he has a master's in sports medicine and he was the athletic trainer at um university of florida for the women's softball team I grew up playing baseball and it was a YMCA league and actually my dad was the coach and he would always have a stretch and exercise beforehand and stuff. But my point is, I think with some high school teams, but especially college teams, you will see people like Scott, like my husband, who who plays a role in the health side. Well, you get into a youth orchestra setting or a band program at a school and I think it's pretty rare to see an actual person there as a health component. 100%. Uh, It could be nice to see that change in the future, Uh, and maybe it will. I mean, when you actually dive into the world of musicians' health overall, not just hearing, there is a lot of information out there. I know Ohio State is one of the universities that actually has, like, a physical musician's health clinic, Mm -hmm. Um, and they really reach out to the music students and things like that. I know a lot of audiology programs now are reaching out to marching bands and things, but it's not—it's not the same as having like an athletic trainer that works with the team. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So it would be cool to see even even med students who are interested in musicians or something being able to have a rotation where they learn about you know how to be a general kind of wellness practitioner. Yeah, and that's something that I had said to that high school class. Uh, you know, the, musicians do need a lot. You and I focus on hearing health, it's a lot more than that, but we don't have a lot of practitioners who are really specialized, and maybe that's part of the problem. I think more musicians need to go into
0: healthcare. told me before you've done the bigger tours, do you want to, mm-hmm. do you want to touch on like what? I'll
1: first? tell you why I, Why I don't want to do it. Yeah. I'll t- let me tell you. Okay. I'll give a story everyone can relate to. There we were in Kentucky <laughs> and uh, doing a homestay, which of course, you know, so many bands when they get started, you're either sleeping in your van or you're sleeping on somebody's floor or, you know, especially now, like it's costs so much money to go and drive somewhere and play and whatnot. So we were staying with this guy, <laughs> my sister and I, and uh, I think my memory is worse than what it actually was, but he was, he was creepy. He was creepy. And my memory was like a mattress on the floor in this one room, and that's like where we were staying, and I didn't feel safe, and it was a whole thing. And I, I think that's where in my mind I was kind of like, I don't really want to do this. Um, and just the overall, you know, when you're on the road and you're playing a lot, it's exhausting anyway. My goodness, to be a local musician, I think of the musicians here who work like how I used to work, three, four, five gigs a weekend, um, back to back, it's exhausting. But then being on the road, not eating well, that kind of stuff, not sleeping well, it's even worse. Now, I never did like the big tour bus tours, anything like that. I did some international stuff. And I realized I don't, I don't like flying with my instruments. And I think probably most people feel that way. But, I mean, if it's your job, you have to. Like, you don't have a choice. Um, but uh, uh, playing over in Ireland and stuff, just being worried about my instruments the whole time. Well,
0: it's different when you're playing like, I mean, you're playing like a Fabergé egg of an instrument there. <laughs> like
1: that's I mean, that's kind of true. But, again, you know, if it was your full-time job and it's what you're doing, people are used to it. I, it's not my favorite thing. And of course, it didn't end up being my full-time profession. So yeah. uh, thank goodness I don't have to deal with that stress.
0: <laughs> so then the elephant in the room with your story is, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say quiet music because I've been in enough folk situations that were <laughs> ruckus <laughs> and yeah. loud. And there's plugged-in folk. There's, all that, there's, there's a lot of noise going on still, but not traditionally considered loud music. What got you thinking about your ears?
1: Audiology did. When I found out about audiology, that's, that's when I was like, oh, no one talked to me about this. My ears have been ringing for a while. Maybe I should look into this. It'd be great to be able to help care for musicians, that kind of thing. It was just like a lightning bolt moment where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. With folk music, I mean, if I'm playing fiddle by myself for a few hours at a time, it is hazardous. Mm-hmm. Um, And I'll put a plug in the left ear because we know the levels get hazardous in the left ears of violinists, fiddle players, whatever, because of where the instrument is located. Guitar and my sister's playing dulcimer, and we're not amplified. I don't really think about it, I don't really worry because I don't really think it's hazardous, to be honest. When I'm in a large jam session, it's totally hazardous. My goodness. And of course, when you go to something like a festival or whatever, you are sitting down for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours all day through the night, you know, that kind of thing, and your ears are taking a beating. And then, of course, in some of these other bands, I often used wedge monitors for live performance. I mean, of course I have in-ear monitors, that's what I do, but I use those more in the studio. Terrible sound levels. Mm-hmm. Oof. I remember this one venue in Chicago we'd play at. It was a it was a small room, a lot of hard surfaces, et cetera. The stage was in the corner. And it was just brutal. The sound levels would just be brutal there. And I I played for a couple of square dances and stuff there with um for a folk music festival. And I definitely had my 15 dB cuts in. And I think it was one of those things where it was a weird room. I don't think it was, I don't think it was like, oh, the sound guy's bad or anything. I don't think it was that at all. Like, yeah, it was a lot. So, so I agree with you. The Often the way I play now, no, we don't need hearing protection for that. When I'm going to sit down and play by myself for many hours. Yeah. I might pop the left one in and then certain amplified gigs. We for sure need them and jam sessions.
0: And I think I think a lot of people who play what I would think of as acoustic music, right? Folk, classical, jazz, oftentimes you would consider, even if you've got a plugged-in guitar, you're, you're still considering it relatively acoustic music, will look at what we talk about with hearing protection and hearing conservation, and I have a lot of people who say, like, well, luckily that's not for me. Hmm. And I have to kind of have a full stop, look them in the eyes kind of moment, um, did you did you have any dissonance with that or was that like right away you just went like oh audiology exists my ears ring my violin is part of the cause of that my fiddle excuse me um
1: well at that time it was both oh yeah i i uh i mean it kind of clicked right away for me okay i do know with some of my patients who are more acoustic they don't think it applies to them although i'm seeing a ch- a change A cultural change in that, especially with orchestras, because you know I run my orchestra programs. Right. People are starting to admit that they have music-induced hearing disorders. You know, I go out, I do the tests, I do see noise notches, things like that. And these people have only ever played classical music. Mm -hmm. Like I had a guy in my clinic, local performer, plays in coffee shops, plays acoustic guitar, like unamplified. And he came in and he ended up getting Mm -hmm. in ears. He wanted a different setup, but I mean he's not at risk. from his own instrument. Now, occasionally he plays with a drummer and they'll plug in and that's a different story. But somebody like that, no, I'm not as worried about him like picking his guitar acoustically and singing. Yeah.
0: I think that's a take-home point that, that most instruments, even with solo practice, you do have the risk there. Acoustic guitar being an exception, and I'm sure we can think of just a handful of other ones, but it's not something to fear. It's just something to plan for.
1: I was just going to say that, Frank. It's like yeah. it's like we work in the same field. Isn't that amazing? I was going to say, even right. the players who aren't at risk personally, I still recommend that they practice occasionally with hearing protection to become bioral, as I call it, like bilingual. Um, because when they're in the situations where they need them, they'll be more used to how their own instrument sounds. Yeah, I'm thinking especially of wind players and brass players. So um
0: Yeah. Again, I keep going back to the athletes thing. It's just like a runner is just planning ahead and recognizing like their shoes, their gait, all those things reduce the risk of injury or increase the risk of injury. And Mm -hmm. if injury happens, you can adjust for it. It's not something to be fearful of because I think some people see it as an all or nothing. Either I'm a person Mm -hmm. who wears earplugs or I'm a person who doesn't. And as long as they Mm -hmm. don't have to think about it, they haven't subscribed to that. Then they are a person who has to worry about injury.
1: Do you find, I find in clinic when I say to, for a a violinist, for example, it's okay to wear one that they like can't believe it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm
1: like, well, think of where your sound source is. Or for like an upright bass player in an orchestra, it's okay to just wear your right one. Like if the horns are there and they're like, what? Yeah, I'm like, it's okay. You have head shadow effect. Like it's okay.
0: (laughs) I think it's like a monocle. (laughs)
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> like you're not going to be the exactly. monopoly, man. Nobody's going to laugh at you. You cover up what's what's the damage.
1: But they do. They think it's all or nothing. Or like I have some patients who are kind of like the earplug martyr. Like I'm going to wear them and it's going to be horrible. And I'm going to wear both. And and that's their mindset. And when that's mm-hmm. your mindset, it's never going to work right.
0: And then I bring uh, just back to like the acoustic instrument thing. I do often talk with patients with hyperacusis about Mm -hmm. one way to return to life return to music return to stage return to performance writing whatever part of you that you feel like is missing at this point is to pick up an acoustic guitar in a quiet room is to go back to your acoustic roots and and reintroduce music to yourself in a way that isn't threatening to your brain
1: absolutely absolutely um You know, one of the things, whenever I see a patient with a music-induced hearing disorder where it's becoming debilitating, let's get on the same page here that you need to reconnect with your heart, basically, which is music, because we can't let that go. Um, So even if they can't really perform out right now, 100% what you just said is what I say too. How can we get you playing every day in a way that feels safe to you? And then, we, you know, we'll, we'll work on it from there. That's the mental health component.
0: Totally, because you got to return them to being the human that they were before.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to, that's like the whole heartache of the disorder is that it has separated from them from, well, from their income sometimes, but also from the thing that they love. There will be
0: times that try the soul. Don't be afraid to raise the Say, won't you please come and rescue me? I'm not ready for this fight. Every bad one makes me who I am. So before I claim defeat, won't you please rescue me? Won't you please rescue me? The last thing I wanted to ask you is just a question that I've been asking musicians uh, because their response is always, it's always different. They take it and run with it in 45 different uh, directions, and I might have we might have talked about this offline before. But my question is just two words. It's just why loud.
1: I don't know. <laughs> 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 I mean, I I know what you're asking, um, but the first place my mind goes to, yeah. I can't give you a simple answer because it's not a simple question, even though it was a two word question. My my first thought is, if music didn't have dynamics. It wouldn't be as satisfying. Mm. So just from a dynamic range standpoint, we need the loud to make the soft sweeter
0: mm.
1: from, from an overall just <laughs> heavy metal band loud. I mean, it's an emotional release. It feels good. It's, it's, it's molecules hitting your body. It's like a massage. I mean, and it can feel really satisfying in a way. Uh, if you're protecting your hearing. And um, you know, being safe about everything, and don't get hurt in the mosh pit and all that stuff. I
0: like that way of looking at it.
1: It wouldn't be quiet without loud. We wouldn't know what it was.
0: Yeah, I like that. That's a nice. That's a nice holistic view on it. Um, anything that you need to plug or anything that you want to emphasize, other than, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna link um, Soundcheck. I'm gonna link uh, directly to your curriculum because I think that it's a brilliant tool. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to plug or or emphasize or link to?
1: Yeah, I do want to plug something for both of us, actually, because of this concept of music audiologists being so rare. Uh, and the value that an audiologist holds is, is really in the consultation um, and instruction and the knowledge we have. And I don't know if your listeners know that they can see us via telehealth. That is something that yes. has... I mentioned earlier it has really opened doors. I spoke with um, a musician and his manager in uh, Europe recently. Um, so as your podcast gets out there, I think that people should know that they don't have to be in Philadelphia or Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio to see us. Yeah, you know they can they can. See any neighborhood-friendly audiologist near them. They can get, you know, of course, the test and the impressions and whatever they need, and they can talk to us. That we're both we're both on tuned this telehealth mm-hmm. platform, um, and that they can link directly to us. I to me, that's just been changing my practice so rapidly and expanding it because it's giving people access to me.
0: Uh, yeah, and and speaking of access, I'm so thankful for having this time and this access to you. Uh, to talk about your and my favorite thing, our ears and music. So, th- thank you. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. A-
0: and for the listener, there's going to be an additional bonus episode where uh, Heather and I really get into the nitty gritty of music audiology and clinical care. So, be on the lookout for that. <music> Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance is by Juan Vasquez and Mary Kim. And a special thanks in this episode to producer and engineer Ben Payne for providing additional tracks of Heather's playing. Thanks for listening.